0: came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, notice in verse 1, first of all, when this happens, we've just spent the last two weeks taking a look at a famous sermon that Jesus gave that's recorded in Luke chapter 6 that we call the Sermon on the Plain. We distinguish that from the sermon that's noted of Jesus in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And what we speculated, or at least I speculated, was that this was basically Jesus' message as an itinerant minister, itinerant preacher, all throughout the region of Galilee. That's why they're similar, but not exactly the same. Now, this tells us something fairly fascinating about that Sermon on the Plain that we just saw in Luke chapter 6, because Luke chapter 7 verse 1 says that when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This would lead us to believe that the place where Jesus delivered this message was not far from Capernaum, somewhere near that place. So he comes now not far from Capernaum. He comes into Capernaum. And again, I want your, you know, your, your mind to kind of flash a little bit when we hear Capernaum. What's notable about Capernaum? That was Jesus's new hometown. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. When he started his ministry, he moved to Capernaum. Again, I'll say it, if you would get a business card from Jesus, it wouldn't say Jesus Christ, you know. That's his title, Messiah. That's how the business card would read. We should do this. We should do a fanciful business card for Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, and then title, it would say, Messiah, Son of God, underneath that. That's his office, so to speak. And when it would give his address, it would say, Capernaum. That's where he lived. So this was his hometown. So he entered Capernaum, and notice it says, And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So notice we have two people involved here. First of all, we have a centurion and then we have the servant of the centurion. Now, what do we know about a centurion? Well, we know that the centurions were sort of the backbone of the Roman army. They depended on these sort of mid-level managers to be the m- people who would govern or, or lead men in detachment of approximately 100. That's what the name centurion means, over 100. And so these men were sort of... Uh, officers of a lower sort of order, but I don't know what it would answer to in today's sort of military structure. But there they are, centurions, important people in the Roman army. But there's something interesting about this. It means that he works for and is an instrument of the oppressors of Israel. I mean, this man was a representative of the Roman legions. This man was sort of the visible extension of Caesar's authority right there in Roman, Judea, and Galilee. When Caesar wanted to exercise his authority, he would do it through the Roman governor, who at this time was Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate would do it through his officers and among those, these centurions. This was, in that sense, the centurion was a bad guy. Now, once you notice, we're not talking directly yet about the centurion, we're talking about the centurion's servant. And I've sort of turned that over in my mind. I wonder about this servant. Was he a Jewish man? Was he a Gentile? I don't know. It could have gone either way. I am supposing that he was a Gentile. I'm supposing that a Jewish man would have found it too much out of his community to uh, work for a Roman centurion. But maybe I'm wrong on that. We don't know exactly whether the servant himself was a Jew or a Gentile. But this is what we do know about the servant. What does it say? He was sick and ready to die. Now, it's very fascinating what we read about this centurion. This centurion was a devout, kind, humble man, where all at the same time he was supposedly an enemy of Israel and an instrument of Israel's oppression. And he's super concerned about his slave. Ladies and gentlemen, this is very strange in the ancient world, and you would especially think so in sort of the rough and ready world of the Roman army, that that if a slave got sick, it's, well, it's too bad, I'm going to lose a good worker, but what can you do? Ladies and gentlemen, under Roman law, a master had the right to kill his slave, and it was expected that a master would kill his slave if the slave started becoming more of a problem than a benefit. I mean, it was just always this constant cost-benefit analysis going on in the mind of a master. And the minute that a slave became too much of a hassle for a master, ended up costing him or being too inconvenient, he had every right to just say, well, kill him or kick him out or leave him for dead, whatever it would be. No, but this centurion was different. This centurion was a man who had a deep heart for a servant, so he approaches Jesus, but he approaches Jesus. Notice it in verse 3. Through intermediaries. What does verse 3 say? He sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. No, no, but but I'm even more fascinated than ever about the centurion. Bad guy, but a good guy. Cares about his servant when he shouldn't care about his servant. Now, we see that he has good relationships with the Jewish elders of the synagogue in the area of Capernaum. And the centurion apparently didn't think himself worthy of a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. He didn't want to put Jesus in an awkward place. And so he says, I don't need to see Jesus myself. I'll send these elders of the Jews to go meet him on my behalf, and they'll go as my representatives. And look what the Jewish leaders said about this man. Verse 4, they said, The one for whom he should do this thing was deserving for... He loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, isn't your mind even blown more about this uh, centurion? He loved the Jewish people. He cared about them so much that he contributed to the building of their synagogue. And you might even think that maybe he was the main contributor because he built our synagogue. Whatever it is, the feeling is, is that they couldn't have built that synagogue without him. By the way, if you go to Capernaum today... You can see the ruins of a synagogue that is built upon the foundation and the place of the synagogue that stood there in Jesus' day. That may very well be the very same synagogue that this Roman centurion helped build. So you think, wow, this is amazing, amazing. What a unique man this is. Now, this suggests a few things to us. It suggests that even though the text doesn't tell us this, it suggests that this Roman centurion was in the category of what we'd call a God-fearer. Does that that phrase sound familiar to anybody? God-fearer is a technical term in the New Testament that means a Gentile who admires and respects and follows the Jewish religion but doesn't become circumcised. And obviously it would apply to a male. You see, in other words, the Roman centurion said, look, I'm not going to go all the way and become an actual Jew, but I know there's something there. I know there's truth there. I see the decadence of Roman society. I see the immorality of our gods. Our own gods as Romans are immoral. I see the high moral standard. I hear the beautiful teaching of Yahweh and the promise of the Messiah. My soul is attracted to that. So even though he didn't become officially a Jewish man himself by submitting himself to circumcision and perhaps kosher eating rites and all of that, but he did say, no, I want to attach myself to this synagogue, he would be known as a God-fearer. Okay, so we're interested by this man, but look at what it says next right there in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. Okay, stop right there. That blows my mind. Jesus went with them. Do do you see what's happening here? Okay, the elders of the Jews come and say, Jesus, there's this Roman centurion, his servant is really sick, and this is a big problem, and the Roman centurion's really sick. And what does Jesus go? Jesus goes, hot dog, I'm going to go. Now, this is fascinating to me because, ladies and gentlemen, it was strictly forbidden by Jewish custom and rabbinical tradition that a Jewish person should not enter into the home of a Gentile. You just didn't do that. You didn't do that. And so we see Jesus almost jumping at the opportunity to do this. And I'm getting excited just after this first line. And Jesus went with them. I'm thinking, Jesus, you're going to blow the doors open right here, right now. You already got under their skin when it came to the Sabbath. But what you're going to do now is even more so. Because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, thou shalt not go into the home of a Gentile. That's not biblical law. That is rabbinic interpretation. That's the law of man being put upon the law of God. And so if Jesus would have walked into that Gentile's home, he wouldn't have broken the law of God at all. But he would have really said, shove it to their traditions. And I I get kind of excited about that. Oh yeah, Jesus, good, go do it. All right, unfortunately, that's not how the story works out. Look, verse six, then Jesus went with them and when he was already not far from the house, he was almost there. The centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Isn't that amazing? Okay, first of all, it just, I feel a little bit cheated from this story. I wanted Jesus to go into the Gentiles' house. What happens? It must have worked something like this. Jesus starts walking very deliberately toward the centurion's house. And and people go on ahead of him. And pretty soon, word gets Hey, Jesus is going to come to your house. And the alarm bells ring in the centurion's mind. He's such a kind, thoughtful man that he says, I don't want to put this prominent rabbi on the spot by leaving him on the threshold. I don't want him to face this dilemma of whether or not I should come into my house. I mean, he didn't know Jesus that well, did he? He goes, I'm not going to put this man in an awkward position. No, let's go out and meet him. And so what does he do? Well, first of all, the centurion himself doesn't even go out to meet Jesus, but he sends messengers out there. It says right there, he says, he sent friends to him saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself i am not worthy that you should come under my roof the centurion knew that it might be a problem from this prominent rabbi to do it so he says no and then he says i'm not worthy that you would come into my house all right i'm even more blown away by the centurion now check it out the elders said he's worthy he's deserving They praised him for building a house of worship. They said he was deserving. But look at the response of the centurion. They said he was worthy. He said he was unworthy. They praised him for building a house of worship. He said to Jesus, don't come into my house. They said he was deserving. He felt he was undeserving. And you know what this shows me? It shows me something very powerful. Strong faith and genuine humility are entirely compatible. Look, I I have known in my days some men and perhaps women of great faith for some reason they haven't been all that humble. Well, I don't know. But I think it's possible, and here we see it in the centurion, faith and humility are certainly not incompatible. And you know, he had the high opinion of other people, yet he had a low estimation of himself. That's a beautiful thing. I like what Spurgeon said on this. How about this? A little Spurgeon for tonight. Quote Your faith will not murder your humility. Your humility will not stab at your faith, but the two will go hand in hand to heaven like a brave brother and a fair sister. The one bold as a lion, the other as meek as a dove. The one rejoicing in Jesus, the other blushing itself. I wish just once I could write a sentence that good. I mean, it's just beautiful. But isn't that a great thought? Here they are, faith and humility together in this man. Now, I don't know what you need more of tonight. Maybe you need more faith maybe you need more humility, maybe you need both. But don't neglect one for the other. It's an important thing. Now, the demonstration of his faith was found in verse 7, where he said this, but say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion fully understood that Jesus' healing power was not a magic trick that required the magician to be present at the sick person's bedside. Instead, he knew this. He knew that Jesus had true authority, that Jesus could command things to be done and that they could be completed outside of his immediate presence. Think about the great faith that the centurion had in the word of Jesus. Jesus, all you have to do is say it, and it's true, and it will be done. He believed, and rightly so, I should say, that Jesus could heal with a word just as easily as he could heal with a touch. You know, it was often Jesus' pattern to heal with a touch, was it not? But he wasn't dependent upon that. Here we find that he could heal with a word as well. And look at his logic. His logic is wonderful in verse 8. He says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. You see, the centurion also knew about the military chain of command and how the orders of a person who's in authority are unquestioningly obeyed. And he said, Jesus, you have this authority over creation. You have this authority over life, over the spiritual realm. You don't have to see my servant. You don't have to touch my servant You say the word, and he will be healed. Don't you like this centurion even more than ever now? All right, now, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now, when the centurion's messengers, because remember, the centurion never had a face-to-face with Jesus. He did this through friends that he sent on his way. But when those friends were delivering the message to Jesus, I imagine a huge smile coming upon the face of Jesus. First of all, thinking, He's meeting me before I get to his house. You know, I would have entered his house if I was there, but he's showing such consideration to me. That's good. This man is good. And then he's saying, he understands that I don't have to be present there, that I'm not a magician, that I have true authority. And the smile just gets bigger and bigger on Jesus' face. And then finally, when the messengers are done talking, Jesus says these remarkable words. Well, first, he doesn't say anything. He says, he marveled at him. That's in verse 9. The centurion's understanding of Jesus' spiritual authority, it made Jesus marvel. His mind was blown. His simple confidence in the ability of Jesus to merely speak something and it could be done, it showed that he was free of this sort of, oh, what would I say, superstitious reliance on merely external things. Ladies and gentlemen, this was great faith and it was worthy of praise. You know this. You know, don't you? That Jesus only marveled on a few occasions. He marvels here at the great faith of the centurion. Does anybody remember another occasion on which Jesus marveled? We're told in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 6, that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his own people. Isn't that amazing? That on both ends of the scale... Jesus can be amazed either by our unbelief or by our great faith. Matter of fact, he says this in verse 9, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He looked at this Gentile centurion, or at least the messengers that he sent, this man who was a living symbol of Israel's oppression, and he thought that it was greater than any faith that he had seen among the people of Israel, he said. By the way, there's a little nugget right there in that verse. What verse is that? That's verse um, 9. Not even in Israel. There's a little nugget there that I think is worthy of examination. Not even in Israel. This is what I want you to understand. Israel as a political entity did not exist at the time that Jesus said that. You understand that, don't you? If you were to look at a map in that day... And say, well, where's Israel? There was no Israel. There was Roman governed Judea, there was Roman governed Galilee, there was the grand province of Palestine, there was all of that. There was no Israel as a political entity. But you know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew that you could have Israel simply because the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived and had community and existed and they didn't need that particular land as their own political entity to make for Israel. And this is what I'm trying to get from that. Jesus calls them Israel even without their own land. It shows that Israel had not died at all in God's estimation. Verse 10. They come back, and they found the servant well who had been sick. Beautifully, the centurion's um, request was answered. His very unselfish request. By the way, aren't you touched by how unselfish the centurion's request was? It wasn't even for himself. But the servant was healed, and it was a beautiful answer to prayer and a testimony to the faith of this remarkable man. Next, verse 11. Now, it happened on the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now, please notice this. Verse 11 says that many of his disciples were with him, and a large crowd. These are the days of Jesus' popularity. So everywhere that he goes, there's big crowds following him of disciples. And when we say disciples right there, as it's given to us in verse 11, it means disciples probably in the broader sense. Sometimes the New Testament uses the word disciple to refer just to the 12, but other times it uses that word disciple to mean anybody who kind of paid attention and wanted to learn something from Jesus. So this is probably disciples in the bigger sense, and they come to the city of Nain. You see that Nain is a good distance from Capernaum. It's also a little bit south and a little bit east, I think, of Nazareth, but it's there south of Nazareth, there, the village of Nain. Verse 12, a dead man's being carried out. Now, any funeral is a tragedy. It really is. Um... I understand that for a person who has been ill a long time and has suffered under their illness for a long time, that for that particular person or for that particular situation, it may see that death comes to them as a gift. But in general, I think we must say, ladies and gentlemen, death is not a gift. Death is an enemy. That's how the Bible regards it. Death is an enemy. But here's the wonderful thing, that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, it is a conquered enemy. And that's why we can just say this, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? But but we just don't have kind of this... Um, you know just the circle of life kind of thing you know kind of this karma kind of mentality of thing well you know it's all listen i'll tell you what death is is bad jesus doesn't like death and that's why he went to the great extent that he did to defeat death at the resurrection and to bring its ultimate defeat at the end of all things. So what do you think is going to happen? A dead man's being carried out, and tragedy upon tragedy, it's not only the tragedy of a man who's dead, but look at who he's leaving behind. He's leaving a widow behind. Now, again, he's the son of a widowed mother. That means that now this poor woman has no support. the ancient world, they had no safety net. All you had was your family, maybe some friends, But it was always a tremendous tragedy when you had a childless widow. Well, this woman was a widow, but she had a son, a son who could help provide for her. But what happened? Eventually, now she's a widow that has no children. It's a double tragedy. So there's this large crowd, mourners. They're making all the mourning. They're making all the the groaning. It's a very vivid scene. Then Jesus, in verse 13, said something very strange to this woman. Something that if the context didn't tell me different, I would almost think that this was wrong or cruel of Jesus to do. He went up to this poor, bereaved mother and he looks her in the eye and he says, do not do not weep. Honestly, that's a strange thing to say at a funeral. It's a strange thing to say at a funeral of a, uh, where, where the, the bereaved is someone who has such a bleak outlook on life as this poor mother. But Jesus came up and he said this to her. And please notice, he said it to her. And we wouldn't know it unless the text told us. It says, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I don't know how I would paint this. I wonder, and I'm only speculating here. Just grant me a little bit of license. I wonder if Jesus' own eyes weren't tearing up as he told her, do not weep. Here's a woman almost beside herself with grief. And we understand, poor lady, you feel like your world's come to an end. Not only do you miss his presence, not only do you miss his friendship, not only do you miss his future, not only do you miss all of that and your son, but your own situation is now so bleak. Jesus says, no, with great compassion, woman, I tell you, do not weep. Now, how could he say such a thing? Well, I'll tell you how he could say such a thing, because what he was going to do in just a moment, You know, just before I do that, just before we look at verse 14, I read a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this text. It was titled, Young Man, Is This For You? And he likened the hearers of his message not to the grieving widow, but to the dead man. And he spoke to people who were spiritually dead. It was a really powerful message. And he said, You who are spiritually dead, Look how much grief you're causing your mother. Look how much grief you're causing the people around you. The spiritually dead cause so much grief to the people who have spiritual life around them. And I just wonder if there's not somebody here tonight who's going to hear this, you know, over some kind of way that this message gets out. You're spiritually dead and you know it. You're resisting giving your life to Jesus Christ. Listen, I could give you dozens of arguments for why you should give your life to Jesus and have him give you new life. But let me give you one more. more. Do it as a kindness to the people who love you. You've got a praying mother or a praying grandmother who's agonizing over your soul. Will you leave them weeping the way that this woman was weeping? Will you do this to the people all around you who long for you to have the new life that they have? Why are you torturing them? Give your life to Jesus. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but man, I think that's another good reason to lay on people why they should embrace spiritual life. All right, now verse 14. Then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. What a scene this must have been. First of all, the coffin is open. What a heart-rending scene. Now, one thing you need to understand is that in the ancient world, in the Jewish world, they did burials almost immediately. This is because um, the bodies would putrefy very quickly. And so they buried people quick. This young man hadn't been dead probably more than a day. And so he comes up to this young man. Everybody's just so reeling from the intense grief. And he comes to this open coffin that the people are carrying. They stop. Jesus goes up and with such great tenderness, with such great power, he goes. And what does he do? He touched the open coffin. And then he spoke to that dead man as if he was alive. Did you know that's something God specializes in? He speaks to dead people as if they're alive and he brings life to them. That's what he does. So if you're spiritually dead, don't despair. The God who speaks to the dead as if they were living, he speaks to you, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He touched the coffin. He spoke to the young man. Young man, I say to you, arise. And verse 15, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and they presented him to his mother. I love that. He sat up. Now, he's got to be in all kinds of grave clothes. He sat up and he said, mur, 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 mur. it's just amazing. He began to speak. And they presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And this report went about him, or this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Now, listen. This is not the only time that Jesus broke up a funeral procession by raising the person who was being carried in the funeral possession. He also did this for Jairus' daughter. He also did this for Lazarus. Jesus didn't like death. He regarded it as an enemy that had to be defeated. And I see in all three of these, in the, 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 uh, wi- the widow's son in name, I see it in the daughter of, uh, of the, the synagogue ruler. I, I see it in Lazarus himself. Something common, Jesus serving notice on death. It's as if he's coming there and he's saying, you know what, I'm, I'm giving you notice right now. Your time's running out, death. I'm going to come and I'm going to defeat you at the empty tomb and I'm going to show that you are a defeated enemy and never again are you going to touch and harm my people the way that you've stung all of humanity. That's something very precious. Now, understand a few things. First of all, this young man was not resurrected. Are we clear on that? He was resuscitated. He was revived. What's the difference between resuscitation and resurrection? It's pretty simple. Resurrection, you never die again. uh, Resuscitation, you die once again. And in a way, think about this poor young man. He had to die twice. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a difference. His body was resuscitated. It was not resurrected. All right, before we go on to verse 18, there's a wonderful story about Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody, as a young, just full of energy minister, he was called on to do his first funeral. And so for his funeral, he goes, I've got to preach a funeral message. And I go, how, where do I learn how to preach a funeral message? And he said, well, I'll, I'll look in the Gospels and see what Jesus preached for a funeral message. And so he looked anytime time Jesus attended a funeral. And what did he find? He finds Jesus never preached a funeral message because he always raised the person from the dead. So Jesus doesn't exactly give us help as pastors on how to preach a good funeral message. But he does show us his amazing power over death. All right, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent him to Jesus, sent them to Jesus saying, "Are you the coming one or do we look for another?" Now this is fascinating. It tells us right there in verse 18 that the disciples of John reported these things to John himself. So you can just imagine they go back to John who's still, you know, eating wild locusts and honey out in the wilderness and yelling at people and all the rest of it. John's still doing his thing out in the wilderness and they come, John, you can't believe this Jesus whom you baptized, you cannot believe what's going on with him. Let me tell you what's happening. Now, let let me speculate here and, and I'm sorry, I'm getting the timeline a little confused in my head. I'm doing this on the fly. I don't know if John was in prison yet when he said this. I'm trying to remember. I believe that he was. So he wasn't off in the wilderness. In all likelihood, he was in prison, having been imprisoned by the wicked Herod for speaking out against his immorality and his illegitimacy. And because of that, Herod threw John in prison. So the disciples of John bring the message back to John while he's in prison. And what does he say? They say, John, you cannot believe what Jesus is doing. Jesus healed a centurion's servant, and he didn't have to be there. And Jesus raised a young man who was dead, and he raised him up from the dead, and they tell him about this miracle and that miracle. And John is just, well, he's really impressed by all of this. And so John called two of his disciples, two of his disciples, by the way, John still had disciples. Did you know that some of the disciples of Jesus Started out as disciples of John? Who are they? I looked quickly. Um, uh, Andrew and uh, I don't know, maybe John, I'm not sure. At least Andrew for sure. They started out as disciples of John and he pointed them to Jesus. But John still had his own disciples. Here's the question that they wanted, uh, that John wanted his messengers to ask Jesus. Do you see it right here in verse 19? Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, before this, John seemed to recognize so clearly that Jesus was the Messiah. Please remember, what did he see with his own eyes? He saw the Spirit of God descending upon him, and he heard God the Father speak with a voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, look, if that's not going to persuade you that this man that you just baptized the Messiah, then I don't know. But he knew at one time before this, John had no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. But now he seems not so sure. Now, in a way, don't our hearts go out kind of sympathetically to John? Have you ever struggled with doubts? Maybe once you were so sure of things in the faith and now you seem kind of shaken by me. Well, I don't really know. Listen, I think we can also say that there's probably not much doubt that John's um, crisis of understanding who Jesus was was connected to the fact that he was in prison, death was on the horizon, and Jesus had not set him free. Are you the coming one, Jesus? Are you the one that's going to do it? Well, here we go. Verse 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? All right, just delivering the message. And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's a mind blower. Jesus, doing his work of preaching and ministering to the practical needs of so many people. It's at that moment that these two disciples of John come and bring the question, hey, we got to take this back to John. Are you really the Christ or not? Tell us, are you really the coming one? And what did he do? Jesus said, listen, I want you to understand, just tell John what you've seen and heard. Now, it's interesting Because what he told John, or what he delivered to John through the messenger, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Almost all of that is taken from promises in the book of Isaiah. That the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead live, the poor have the gospel. But the only one that's not specifically mentioned in Isaiah is lepers being cleansed. Other than that, it's all mentioned in Isaiah. Do you see what Jesus is telling these messengers of John to go back and tell John in prison, hey, I am the one prophesied. I'm doing the prophesied work of the Messiah. I'm fulfilling the Messiah's job description, and nobody else is doing it. Yes, I am the one. It's so plain. It's so simple from this. I just have so much sympathy, though, for John, because you just see... Jesus, if you are the Messiah, why aren't you busting me out of prison? If you're the Messiah, why isn't it easier for me? And ladies and gentlemen, isn't this a crisis that many of us run up into? Jesus, if you really are who you said you were, then how come my life isn't turning out as I hoped it would? We have to deal sometimes with these profound disappointments you thought god would do something and at least at the moment it doesn't seem that god is doing it ladies and gentlemen this is a very real issue for each and every one of us i think it challenged john It challenged, John because when Jesus gave his description of what the Messiah would do, he gave the description in this way of announcing things that were true and powerful. Ladies and gentlemen, there were not other people going around Galilee, uh, giving sight to the blind and making the lame walk and raising the dead. There weren't other people doing that. What Jesus did was absolutely unique, but on another scale... It almost seemed to to have this amazing power of the Messiah and to use it just to heal a few blind people. Jesus, if you've got all this power of the Messiah, if you've got it all coursing through your being, why don't you use it to overthrow the Romans? Why don't you use it to bust your friends out of prison? Why don't you do it to right every wrong in society the way it is right here, right now? If you've got all this power, why do you choose to display it in seemingly small acts of mercy and blessing unto others. Because Jesus is trying to say, because that's the agenda of my kingdom. My kingdom is one day going to dominate the whole earth, and it's going to be a kingdom that comes over all this earth. There's no doubt about it. I will reign forever and ever, but I'm going to start the work of my kingdom through the humble work and individual lives that I touch one on one. And frankly, I don't know if John expected that. I wonder if John expected the work of the Messiah to be more outwardly glorious than it actually was. And so Jesus answers back brilliantly. He says, oh no, it's glorious. I'm doing what nobody else can do, but I am doing it in these somewhat humble yet glorious demonstrations of love and mercy for individuals. You saw that last verse, verse 23, right? That's the verse that we're going to conclude with right now. Did you see it? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I think we have a new beatitude right there, don't we? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me, Jesus said. Now, number one, I think you could say, blessed is he who's not offended. And some of us just need to have thicker skins, don't we? There's a blessing in just being a person that's not so easily offended. But let's go beyond that to really look at what Jesus was really saying, because don't leave off the me. Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me, Jesus said. In other words, it is possible for you to so wrongly anticipate the work of Jesus in your life that it's an offense to you when he doesn't do what you thought he would do. Did you really think that the work of Jesus in your life was to make your life all comfortable. That trial-free life that you always longed for. Jesus was the way to that. No, you have a wrong expectation, and blessed are you if you're not offended when you find out who Jesus really is and what he wants to do in your life. Did you think that Jesus wanted your life with him to be totally secret to the world and just nobody would know that you're a follower of Jesus to keep it all under wraps and that you'd never have to confess him before men in any way. Well, you know what? You're going to be blessed when you're not offended when you find out that that's not the case. You see, Jesus is full of promise. He's full of power for us. But for sometimes, or some of the time, it's very upsetting to us when we have to be corrected from our unbiblical understanding of Jesus and come back to Jesus as he really is. And blessed are you when you can love him even more when you find out who he really is. When you fall in love with the biblical Jesus, not the imaginary Jesus that might be in your head, but the real Jesus, the Jesus who is really there. Blessed are you when you're not offended, when you're not scandalized, because that's really the word there, to be scandalized because of him. Father, that's my prayer for us all here this evening. I just think, Lord, I think of what a heavy passage this is. And Jesus, um, I pray for those here this evening who maybe at some time, at some place, They have felt sorely disappointed in you. Maybe, Lord, they've never whispered that to another person, but that's how it is, Lord. They have felt sorely disappointed in you. Jesus, I pray that you would shine the light of your truth and the beauty of who you really are upon those hearts, upon those minds, and that you would give them this great blessing to know you as you really are not not in what we might dream you to be, but as you really are, and that we would embrace that and not be offended because of it. Would you do that work in us, Jesus? We need you to. So do it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.